It's good. Let me go ahead from the outset and uh, commend you all. Your Easter game is strong. A lot of nice outfits out there. Kids, just want to give you hope. One day you'll get to pick out your own clothes. It's going to be a while, though, but just know when you pick them out, you have to buy them. So there's good and bad. If you have a Bible, let's go ahead and get those out. Track down the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. It's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, second book. Feel free to use your table of contents. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are should be some underneath a chair somewhere around you. You can grab one of those and pull that out. Um, as always, or as is our custom, if you need a copy of God's Word or know somebody that would receive one, those are our gift to you if you want it. There's more at the kiosk in the lobby. You will not be tackled at the door if you're trying to walk out with one of those. And honestly, I never do this. I don't think I've ever done this. But if you're not using an ESV Bible, so mine is an ESV, English Standard Version, uh, or an NIV, uh, then maybe grab one of those Bibles out of the chairs and just have it open as a reference point. So we may have some KJV people in here, or NASB, or there's a whole lot of English translations. But if you don't have an ESV, it might be good as a point of reference. Pull that out, open it up to Mark as well, or use your phone, turn it on. Everybody's got one of those, a Bible app. Um, hopefully this will make sense in just a few minutes while I'm asking you to do this. might be helpful to see. Uh, until we get there, though, um, there's there's uh, something that every storyteller, communicator, movie writer, book author, uh, there's something that, that they all know very well, and that it's it's hard to craft a good ending. It's just hard to end things in general, uh, because endings can define things. A great ending can make everything that came before it retroactively great. It uh, can make a bad movie good or a bad book good, or it can have the opposite effect. If you have a, a bad ending, it could make what was seemingly a good story turn out bad because that, that ending sticks with you. Um, beginnings are obviously important depending on the medium. You, you want to grab your audience's attention. If you're opening a book, you kind of want to be grabbed. If you're listening to a speech or even a TED talk, you kind of want to be uh, sucked in or a movie opening scene kind of draws you in. The middle is obviously the content, that's a necessity, but the ending is what is often most remembered. It's the lasting memory. It is literally the last memory uh, of whatever that is, whether it's heroic or, or tragic or happy or somewhere in between. Endings matter immensely, uh, which is part of why they're so difficult. There's a lot of pressure when it comes to how am I going to end this? How am I going to wrap this up? How am I going to... Uh, land the plane, as you'll hear today. So a lot of pressure involved. Uh, by the way, I was researching, I was trying to think of something, trying to find something like what has a historically good ending and bad ending that really changes things. And I couldn't find one thing in particular, but I was as I was re- researching this, a list of the worst movie endings popped up. And so I kept researching, I kept finding lists, and Titanic was on, the, on every one of those lists. And I couldn't understand it. Like, who doesn't know the ending? I mean, the boat sinks. You know that's coming. So I'm not sure why people were surprised by the ending. Maybe it was the death of Leo and they got all upset about that. But I don't want to ruin it for you, but the boat sinks. So um, sometimes the quality of the ending is based on the expectations of the audience. Because if you go in to watch Titanic or read a book and you're upset that the boat sinks in the end, you, you thought you didn't know you're reading history uh, as you went into it. So... Um, Speaking of endings, if uh, you're a member of this church or if you've listened to any number of sermons here you and you're perceptive at all, you likely know that I struggle with endings. Uh, you probably think that I just don't believe in them, like it's just one 
ongoing, never-ending monologue, and it's really just a pause between those each week. Uh, you've probably picked up on the go-to saying, when I really can't find an ending, it's, well, we got to land this plane. Or if I pass the runway and time is up, then it's, we got to crash uh, this plane. Uh, so if you hear that, then you know that I'm struggling to find an ending, but it's not from lack of effort. It goes back to the fact that endings are just hard. If you don't believe me, ask, ask Kyle. He taught me everything I knew on how not to end a sermon. Um, there's a dynamic about how how things should end, and it just makes it uh, difficult. But um, thankfully, the gospel writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, particularly Mark, who is before us today, he knows how to end things. And I would say he perfected the crash landing or the abrupt ending. That's sort of his style. If you know the gospel of Mark at all, he begins rather abruptly. Uh, he loves the word immediately when he's making transitions. He really doesn't transition, transition. He just says, and immediately, and this happened. He's like the guy running the slideshow who has the happy trigger finger. He's just going, this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and just keeps going through the story. And he takes that style consistently through the end, where we find one of the more abrupt endings in the Bible, one that on the surface may puzzle us. But if we can get our minds around the ending of Mark, we'll, we'll understand it's actually for us. Okay, It's not meant to puzzle us. So we've made, as a church, our way to the end of Mark's gospel. If you're a guest this morning, you have walked into the end of a journey that started in August. There were some breaks in there. I'm not 100% sure how many weeks it actually took us to get through Mark. I didn't look at that this week, but you're coming into the end of the journey, but it's fitting Because today is Easter. Easter is about the resurrection. Surprise if you didn't know that. And Mark ends on the resurrection. So it all uh, worked out there in the end. So uh, no strange bunnies that lay eggs at the end of the Bible. That's not actually there. Um, Just resurrection. So uh, I'm about to read what I would simply label as an abrupt surprise ending in Mark. Um, Not that reading about the resurrection is a surprise given the day, but how Mark ends, like just so abruptly, is a surprise. Okay, It's that quickness that surprises us. And it's abrupt because I'm going to end, I'm going to stop reading at verse 8. And you may see verse 20 in your Bibles. Okay, I'm going to pick up in verse 40 of chapter 15 because that's where we left off last week. Promise you won't be finished or, or lost. Hopefully you won't be lost. We're going to pick up in verse 40 of chapter 15. Read through verse 8 of chapter 16. And if you're wondering why I'm going to stop there, just hang on. We're going to we're going to get to that. For now, just trust me. Even if you don't know me, that we're going to get to an explanation of why Mark has this abrupt, surprising but incredibly relevant and instructive ending that is in verse 8. All right. So with that, let's see. What the Lord has for us on this Easter Sunday, again, be helpful if you had an ESV translation or an NIV uh, to be able to reference that this morning. Before I read it, just real quick, where are we at in the story? Okay, we've walked into a story. So Jesus Christ, he's the main character. He's been arrested by this point. He's been tried by his own people, the Jews. They've turned him over to the Romans. The Romans really couldn't find any guilt in him, but the Jews persisted. And so they convicted him and called for his crucifixion. So he's been wrongly accused, wrongly tried, wrongly convicted. And he has been at this point in the story wrongly crucified. So as we start reading, Jesus is hanging dead on a cross. 
He's hanging dead on a cross. That's the backdrop of where we pick up. All right. Mark verse Mark chapter 15, verse 40. This is the word of God. There were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, which would have been Saturday then, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he had learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Seeing the place where they laid him. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. All right. A familiar story to a many, a controversial story for some, a life changing story for millions uh, throughout history. Uh, here's how we're going to, to tackle this. Obviously, it's a monumental uh, text, so we're going to tackle it as best we can. I've got four exhortations to put before you uh, to frame our time today. I'm going to do my best to explain what's happening here, not every little detail, but as best I can. Uh, but as I do that, I'm going to exhort us through what we are uh, seeing. And just so you know, if you're a guest, if I uh, create any questions for you, uh, or if you walked in with questions, this would go for members as well. I'd love to address those. If you have any questions about what I say, Kyle kind of said this in the announcements, or about the text in general, about the resurrection, about anything surrounding it, I want to make sure that uh, we get those addressed. So find me after the service or track down an email or a, a phone number and love to engage with you. But let's dive in now. Four exhortations flowing from this text, and I'll give them to you as you go, but they'll also be on the screen. First, appreciate the reliability of the Bible. Appreciate the reliability of the Bible. Okay? This is an interesting exhortation because it doesn't necessarily come from within the text that I just read, but it happens to support the text that I just read, obviously. Um, the exhortation has really more to do with the end that I referenced earlier that we're not going to cover and I didn't read. And if you were here last week, you probably remember, well, Corey, you said you weren't going to address that and you were just going to email something out. Well, obviously, I changed my mind. OK, didn't look ahead as much as I should have and decided it's it's better to cover this um, because 
really, when you start to look at how do you preach the end of Mark without addressing this, you realize I really can't preach the end of Mark without addressing the fact that I'm saying that Mark ends at verse eight. And I think the explanation of why Mark ends at verse eight supports everything that else that we're going to cover today and really anything we ever cover every time we open the Bible, whether it's today or next Sunday or Wednesday or around a table, it doesn't matter. So what cannot be hidden is the fact that your Bibles have more than verse eight. If you're looking at the ESV, you see verses nine through 20, but you see it in brackets. Okay, you see it in brackets. And you should also see a note between verses 8 and 9 that say something like this. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. NIV translation should say something similar. If you have a New American Standard Bible, it probably just has brackets and a footnote. If you are a King James loyalist, you have nothing. It just keeps going and it looks like those verses are tied in with everything else. So what is this about? Why do we have questionable verses in the Bible? What are manuscripts? Is this a big deal? A lot of questions surrounding this. To which I would say, yes, it is a big deal. But maybe not for the reasons that you are thinking. Because I think sometimes people see stuff like this in the Bible and it's an automatic cause for doubt. Okay, well, they don't even know what goes in the Bible. How can I trust it? They can't even figure out what goes in this thing. Which is one of the main reasons I bring this up today. Is because I think... That instead of something like this causing doubt, I think it should actually engender confidence if you understand why this is here and, and, and the reasoning behind it. So let me try to explain this without getting too far in the weeds. I am absolutely certain I missed the seminary class where it said, do not talk about something like textual criticism in a sermon on Easter. So this is probably a big foul, but we're going to go there as best we can. So like every ancient text, there's an original version and then you have copies of that. Okay, every ancient text is original version and you have copies of that. And I know we know this, but in ancient times, they didn't have computers they didn't have the Internet they didn't have copiers. Okay, you didn't just type it up, save it to your U drive or whatever drive you got and then email it out or put it on the cloud and make copies of it. That was not an option. What was available was Joe or whatever his name might have been to write handwrite a copy of that original to literally sit down and handwrite a copy of this. How long does it take you to read this? Okay. How long do you think it would take you to copy it? So these copies are being called manuscripts here in the ESV. So here's the deal. None of the original versions of the Bible text still exist, which is true of a lot of ancient texts. But we have thousands of copies Thousands of manuscripts, some of them dated very early in close proximity to when the originals were written, when these events actually happened. I'm not going to go into this today, but there are a lot of ancient documents that we put a lot of trust in that don't have a fraction of the manuscripts that the Bible has and certainly don't have manuscripts dated in close proximity to the original or to when it actually happened in terms of evaluating historical reliability. Based on the evidence of manuscripts, nothing really outpaces the Bible in terms of ancient documents. As one historian noted, talking specifically about the gospel accounts, so that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, he said, the number of gospel manuscripts in existence is about 20 times larger than the average number of extant manuscripts of comparable writings. 20 times larger. 
Now, here's an important note about manuscripts that's significant to understanding this longer ending of Mark. One of the realities of handwritten copies of ancient manuscripts is something known as variance. Basically, there are variations that exist between manuscripts, with the overwhelming majority of those being like spelling problems, grammatical errors. I didn't put this here. I flipped a word around. I didn't read that correctly. They inadvertently changed the word, but they didn't change the meaning. And because we have so many manuscripts, we can lay them side by side and go, okay, I see all these little variations, but I can see he meant this. He just put that word in the wrong spot so we can verify this. You know, I think some of the best arguments come from your critics. The best arguments for your case come from your critics. There's a guy named Bart Ehrman who likes to argue against the reliability of the Bible. And he said this about this particular topic. He said, most of the changes found in our early Christian manuscripts have nothing to do with theology or ideology. Far and away, the most changes are the result of mistakes, pure and simple, slips of the pen, accidental omissions, inadvertent additions, misspelled words, and blunders of some sort or another. Think about it. I read a lot of papers in college, so... Building science major first, wrote no papers. Seminary after that, wrote a lot of papers. Shock to the system. But if I was to give you, every one of you right now, a 20-page paper that I wrote in college and said, all right, go, make me a handwritten copy of it. Do you think that we would, every one of them would be perfect, or do you think you might misspell a word or miss a word or leave a word out here or there? But I doubt you would totally change my paper in terms of meaning or anything significant. You would just misspell or your your writing would be so horrible that I wouldn't better read something. And then I took those copies and I mixed them all up and said, you make copies of those. And then you make another little error here or there. Now, again, how does this what does this have to do with the ending of Mark? How does this help us? Well, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts don't have verses nine through 20 in there, just like the ESV says. There's practically a consensus that it was added later by a copyist who didn't think that he was given the correct and full ending of Mark. He read Mark, thought the ending was missing, took and compiled stuff from other sources and inserted them here. And then his copy got copied a few more times and it got passed down. And if you don't grasp the book of Mark, if you don't understand as a whole, you can see how I read that in and go, hang on, somebody didn't give me the last page. Like there's a there was a deleted page here. So I'm going to I'm going to take these other documents that I got. I'm going to I'm going to insert how this ending. Okay, Matthew had a great commission. So let me let me put that in there. You can easily understand why he thought the ending was missing. Scholars, particularly those known as textual critics, conclude that this ending is not original to Mark. And on top of that, early, on top of the earliest manuscripts not containing it, the style doesn't match Mark. If you understand Greek, the Greek language doesn't match Mark. Some of the early church fathers attest that it wasn't original to Mark. Now, we, we could preach through this, through that ending, and I could show you how every bit of it accords with other truths in Scripture. Okay, So this is not a matter of orthodoxy or heresy. So don't find someone with a KJV and say, you're a heretic, you got extra Bible. Like, there's a reason the ESV and NIV put it there. It's not heresy. It's, it, that's, that's, what it's not a, that's not what it's about. Okay? No heresy, no contradictions. It's just about the best evidence points against this being original. Okay? And in terms of 
why you have why the KJV has it and the ESV and the NIV put it this way. Hopefully, you know that Jesus and Mark didn't speak speak English. Okay, English didn't exist in that day. We have English copies of the original manuscript. These are translations from Greek in the New Testament, Hebrew in the Old Testament. And the KJV is based on an old translation. There's been more scholarship since then to say, I don't think this is original. All right, here's my point before you fall asleep, because I can just see like, oh, OK, just get home with it. <laughs> OK, talking about textual criticism in a sermon on Easter. All right. This is not something this is the point. This is not something that should cause doubt regarding the reliability of Scripture. This is actually something that should provoke confidence in the reliability of Scripture. Having this proves that your Bible has been scrutinized for centuries. It's been scrutinized. It's been torn through over and over to make sure that it is reliable. Okay? There's been a painstaking process to make sure that the Bible has been accurately transmitted throughout the ages. It shows that we have backup, substantial backup to validate our English Bibles. The providence of God is all over the fact that we are holding an English Bible in our hands. But underneath the providence of God, there is a process that we can trust that put this Bible in our hands. If you've ever just outright dismissed the Bible, then you've not actually studied it. And you've not studied what backs it up. And you've not studied how it came to being. Okay, if you have, we'd love to talk to you about that. But most people just dismiss it outright and don't know the historicity of it. I would say the burden and the homework is on you. And then come and let's talk about whether or not it's valid. All of this is important for two reasons this morning. One, again, it's hard to... Say verse 8 is the end. If there's more verses there and you're looking at them going, okay, this is not the end. But two, and more importantly, Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection. Okay? Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection. And this text, along with many others, speak to the resurrection. The Apostle Paul himself said in a letter in in another part of the New Testament, says, if Jesus is not alive, then we're to be pitied. Okay? Just pity us if Jesus is not alive. So we need to understand that what we're looking at is, yes, a divinely inspired text, but we're also looking at historical events in a historical document. Jay Gresham Machen wrote, Christianity is based upon an account of something that happened. The resurrection is Christianity's climax. It's central, historical and verifiable event. So as we look at this rather abrupt ending, with more verses that, we're aren't, that we aren't going to cover. And as we sort of just take a peek this morning at the climax of Christianity, I want us first to appreciate the reliability of the text that is before us. Okay? We can respect it. We can trust it. And that ending that wants to cause doubt in some should actually cause confidence because of what it took to get this in our hands. Okay? All right. I want us to appreciate the reliability of the Bible, which is tied to the next exhortation. Next, I want us to examine the veracity of the evidence okay, of the resurrection. One of the greatest legal minds in British history said, I know pretty well what evidence is. And I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection has never broken down. Okay, the evidence or the arguments for the veracity or the truth of the resurrection are more than compelling. Okay, if you've ever looked into them. And we could spend an entire semester in one class unpacking this, looking at the evidence, the rebuttals, the responses to those rebuttals. 
Okay, we could unpack all of that, how there's not great responses to a lot of of the objections to uh, to or there's not a lot of uh, great objections to certain evidences put out there. And then there's good objections to others. And we could unpack all of that. So we could spend days here, but we have minutes. OK, and you want me to find the runway at some point. So let's just deal with the evidence in this text. OK, just in this text, because it's obvious amidst all Mark's kind of hurriedness and abruptness, he's still presenting evidence. Right. One of the things that sticks out in what we have from Mark are witnesses, witnesses and the personal names of these witnesses. So scholars will tell us that Mark was written somewhere between or it was put together somewhere between A.D. 50 and 60. So 50 and 60 A.D. All right. So within a few decades of these events actually happening. And Mark is not specifically just trying to give some people some credit. He's trying to say these people saw this happen. These people saw this happen. He brings up people that the original readers could go and ask, did this actually happen? Paul would later add that hundreds witnessed or saw the resurrected Jesus. The Bible writers are are adding personal names so you could verify these things. So for Mark, his account is largely based on the witness of Peter, the Apostle Peter, one of the central disciples. That's evident throughout this book. But who's not present at this moment? Peter. He fled. If you would have been here the past couple of weeks, Peter ran, hid, denied. He took off. So we have Mark here give four personal names, as well as mention other people in general. He throws out other women there in verse 41. Okay. We don't have these people around to ask anymore, but the original audience could have easily Shown that this was a fabrication by going asking these people. Okay, you you doubt me? All right, go ask Mary. Okay, go ask Salome. Go ask Joseph. Go ask the centurion. Take note that he mentions the names of the women three times. Okay, you see them in verse 40. Two of them mentioned again in verse 47. And then all three again in verse 1 of chapter 16. Mark does not waste ink. Okay, Again, he's the rapid fire gospel writer. He is making a point if he's going to mention their names over and just mentioning their names. Again, he's already brought up names in the crucifixion. Rufus and remember those guys like he just is tossing out names at the end to say these people were here. They were there. They they saw it. Go find them. He's making a point in the fact that he's naming witnesses. He's also making a point in who these witnesses are. So don't miss that. So you have three women, one with a past and a religious leader. If you think that we don't have a high view of women in our day, you would have hated the first century. Okay, You would have really hated the first century. Women's testimonies were not even admissible in a court in this day. You know what you didn't do if you wanted to validate your case back then? You didn't cite women. You didn't say she said this or she said that. The only reason women would be cited as witnesses in the first century is if it's actually true and you really can't get around the fact that they're witnesses. If you think that the disciples gathered after this was over, Jesus is dead, he's not coming back. Guys, we got to get together. How are we going to keep this movement going? Like a first century Jewish man would not have sat there and said, "Okay, I know what we do. Let's tell them the women saw it. Never would have came to mind ever unless it happened. 
Never would have come up as, with women as witnesses. And then you got Joseph of Arimathea. Think about it. Who killed Jesus? Or who, who were the primary instigators in the death of Jesus? The Jewish religious leaders. Pharisees, Sadducees, okay? The Sanhedrin. Note what Joseph was according to verse 3, 43. A respected member of the council, of the religious council. Now, we can assume that he was a dissenting voice. Okay, if he was there, he was a dissenting voice in the condemning of Jesus. But nonetheless, one of the witnesses of these events that's being put forward is from the, from the group of the biggest enemies of Jesus in this day. Now, to be clear, we, we, we could probably assume that Joseph saw the risen Jesus, but he is a witness to his death. And that's important because people love to argue that Jesus didn't truly die. He didn't really die. That was just a fabrication. You may hear of the, the swoon theory, okay? He wasn't really dead. He was, he was just unconscious or passed out. They took him off the cross and put him in the grave and he came to and, and he was fine. He rolled the stone back and, and he left. And there are a lot of problems with that, but Mark wants us to see that they were not dealing with a person that might not be dead. They were dealing with a corpse. He even uses that word. I mean, first, the Romans were experts at killing. They were really, really good at killing people. And we see here that Pilate is amazed. He's already dead. And so he calls the centurion. He goes, is he really dead? And centurion, who would have been leading this and would have been the expert at killing people, said, yep, he's dead. We know from other accounts they didn't break his legs because they would usually do that to kind of speed up the process. They didn't break his legs because he was dead. You just note this language here in verse 45. They're not handing over Jesus. It says they're handing over the corpse. You want to find out if Jesus died, you go ask Joseph who took him down. You ever, I mean, it's another point for another day. You imagine being Joseph. We know he had Nicodemus from other accounts to help him, but go and get Jesus off that cross and what that must have been like. And Mark's saying, go ask him. Go ask the guy that got the body off the cross and put it in the grave if you don't think he was dead. Go ask the centurion. You want to find out, go ask those guys. Go ask the women. They were observing from a distance at this point. They're watching. As one scholar summed up, he said, the early church would not have invented a story about Jesus being buried by a Jewish leader who at most was a secret disciple rather than his family or close close friends. Nor would invention have made women the chief witnesses of this event. A couple of items real quick in terms of evidence. And this is just sticking with Mark's gospel. Note there's an identifiable tomb in here. Women saw it. It was Joseph's tomb. People want to say, well, they went to the wrong tomb. That was it. Jesus was in another. He's still there. But the women see it according to verse 47. There's nothing to support that they went to the wrong tomb. Then you have little details, just little details you don't put in here if it's fabricated, like the young man dressed in white sitting on the right side inside the tomb. You see that in verse 5 of chapter 16? He's sitting on the right side. The stone was heavy. You know what that detail of him sitting on the right side really means? Nothing. Okay? It's a detail that you only put in there if it actually happened and you're trying to record 
what's going on. Just imagine the, the women recounting this story like we're going, OK, we're going we're going to the tomb and we're, we're, we're on our way. And we're not sure how we're going to get this rock out of the way. We don't know how to do that. but We got the burial spices and we're going to anoint him. We're going to make that happen. We get there and the, the stone's gone like it's it's moved out of the way. And we go in, and there's a young man sitting there dressed in white. He's on, and he's on the right side of the tomb. And he starts talking to us and telling us that we're afraid and we're scared. He's writing this down. You just don't put detail. It's not written like fable. It's written like history. One more. People like to say that ancient people were not as sophisticated as us. They, they would believe stuff like this. You know, they were gullible when it came to um, resurrections. They, we, we, we're sophisticated. We don't believe stuff like this, but they would have. C.S. Lewis calls that chronological snobbery. You're just better because you're later kind of thing. Um, the Jews didn't have a category for resurrection like this. You think these women were expecting resurrection? Why buy all the spices? Figure out how you're going to get the stone out of the way if you're thinking, well, Jesus is coming out anyways. And you take note again, who's not at the tomb on the third day? Who's not there? The disciples. He's told them over and over, he's coming back and it's going to happen in three days. You think they would at least venture over there and go, you know, we don't really, we don't really have a category for this, but he kind of said some things that, that, that led to this. You know, I think he was telling us the Old Testament was saying this as well. Let's go at least check it out. They're not there. They don't believe it. No one involved is expecting resurrection. They would be the last to invent a story about a man coming back from the dead unless it actually happened. I think, again, when it comes to the reliability of the Bible and the veracity of the evidence and examining that, the veracity of the evidence for the resurrection, I think that's on you. The burden of proof is on on the non-Christian, on the skeptic. If you're going to deny Christianity, you have to ask yourself the question, have I looked at the resurrection? Some would say that Christianity is the most falsifiable of religions, and I agree with that. All you have to do is disprove that Jesus is alive. Occupied tomb, empty religion. Unoccupied tomb, game changer. Changes everything. I love how Josh McDowell frames this. He says, the church was founded on the resurrection and disproving it would have destroyed the whole Christian movement. However, instead of any such disproof, through the first century, Christians were threatened, beaten, flogged, killed because of their faith. It would have been much simpler to silence Christianity by putting forth evidence disproving the resurrection, but it could not be done. The oppression that Christians, those first century Christians, witnessed or endured was beyond what most of us could believe. And yet they could not get them to recant. And they couldn't produce a body. So I want us to appreciate the reliability of the Bible and tied to that to examine the veracity of the evidence. Number three, third exhortation, rejoice in the restoration of grace. Rejoice in the restoration of grace. Probably my favorite part of the text. Uh, you don't you don't have the most well-rounded cast of characters uh, that are presented sort of as believers here in the text. The first crop coming out even before Jesus is is fully back and talking to folks. He's got this first crop centurion uh, religious leader. These these women. OK, you don't have the most well-rounded cast of characters. And then you have this little detail in the instruction of this young man in white, which is an allusion to an angel, by the way. But there's a little detail in his instruction to the women that just highlights the restoration of grace 
that should cause all of us to rejoice. But let's take the characters first real quick. As I said, women not highly highly regarded in that day. But it's evident that Jesus throughout his life sought to elevate women. Okay, We see in verses 40 through 41 that many women had followed Jesus and ministered or served with him during his three years of ministry. And it's obvious they trusted him, they loved him, they respected him, they were cared for by him, they cared for him. Again, note who's not in the scene, okay? The disciples, the men who had followed Jesus. So Mark is making a point about noting the women were afraid and, and didn't do at least at first what the angel told them. We'll, we'll look at that piece there in the, in the last exhortation. But they're here, okay? The men are not. Okay, they're here, they're observing at a distance maybe, but they're here. They watched him be taken off the cross. They went and got the spices and they went to the tomb. They're there. They know there's something special about Jesus and they know he's worth pursuing. And one of these women sort of accentuates this. Again, we don't have time to dive into the story of Mary Magdalene, but she was a woman with a past, an outcast. Okay, you've got an outcast being presented as a key eyewitness. Only Jesus does something like that. Only God brings an outcast to be a key eyewitness. Someone society has cast aside is now put on the front lines by Jesus. There's nobody in this story you should expect to be here. That includes Joseph. Again, part of the group that instigated the murder of the son of God. They instigated his death. And here he is, is the one who said, the text says, takes courage in verse 43, goes and asks for the body of Jesus. Not a light thing to go ask a Roman ruler for the body of a crucified criminal. That's not, that was not an easy thing to do. That's why it says he took courage. So you have God's grace visible in the prominence of women here and in the participation of Joseph, these are unlikely candidates of the kingdom or for the kingdom in the eyes of the world. Very unlikely candidates. But here they are, front and center, first and foremost. You couple that with last week and the first responders, as I've said, are a Roman centurion, a group of women and a Jewish leader. If God can use that crew in the first century, he can use anyone. If they can believe, anyone can believe. But there's more. Okay, go to the empty tomb, you walk in with these ladies, and you listen to the angel's instructions. Verse 6, do not be alarmed. Okay, I would say alarm is a natural response to someone who sees an empty tomb that was full, and there's an angel sitting there talking to you. So, okay, alarm and fear. If you trace back through Mark, you kind of see, you see fear as a response to the power of God being demonstrated a lot of times. But do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen or he has been raised he is not here see the place where they laid him but go tell his disciples and peter that he is going before you to galilee there you will see him just as he told you go tell his disciples and peter go Tell that group of guys that scattered in the wind when things went south. Go tell them that Jesus is going ahead of them to Galilee, just like he told them they would. Go tell Peter, the one who didn't initially scatter, kind of cautiously follow. Go, go tell Peter, the one who adamantly denied Jesus. Go tell Peter, the one who brought down curses to tell people that he didn't know Jesus. Go, go tell Peter that Jesus is going to meet him in Galilee. Go tell Peter Jesus is alive. 
And this is not a word of scolding. Okay, It's not a word of rebuke. Like, go tell those cowards I'm coming to get them. That's not what he's saying. This is a word of grace. This is go tell my brothers I'm back. And I'll meet them there. Just like I said I would. Why is Peter singled out? Okay, Because his denial was singled out. Okay, Peter's been singled out the whole time. His denial singled out. Now he's singled out here. Peter, of all of them, probably needed to be told. Peter, your name was mentioned. Because he's sitting there going, even if he hears this, he's like, I don't know if I should go, guys. Like, you just don't, you don't know what I said. You don't know what I did. I was right there. I was face to face. Jesus could see me and I just, I brought curses down. I didn't want anything to do with it. I was so scared. He probably needed to be told. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if you're Peter and those ladies walk in and go, Peter, he mentioned you specifically. The angel said your name specifically, that Jesus is going to be waiting on you in Galilee. So if we think about Mark's account as a whole, one of his first acts of ministry was calling these guys to himself, this group of disciples. And now one of his first acts of ministry post-resurrection is his reconvening, really his restoration of the same group. As one commentator said, the announcement of the angel is not one of deserved blame, but a promise of gathering and going before. The same commentator goes on to say, God completes his plans for the church despite human failure. If the word of grace from the resurrected Lord includes a traitor like Peter, readers of the gospel may be assured that it includes those of their community who have failed Christ as well. Among the many things this story teaches us is that failure is not fatal. Failure is not fatal. Jesus did not give up no matter how great the failure or how many of the flaws. You know, there there are certainly Cultural elites, important people, famous people, virtuous people, moral people, all sorts of people who may or may not, we may or may not expect to become Christians. Okay, There's no group or class beyond salvation. But there is one thing that is crystal clear from the pages of Scripture. God is not partial. From just one, from just the account before us, okay? We see God's grace toward the outcast, toward the marginalized, toward the unlikely. We see his grace toward the enemies, toward the religious, not using that word in a good way. And we see his grace toward failures, towards cowards, to, towards those who fall flat on their face time and time again. Jesus himself made clear, I came not to call the healthy, those that don't think they need anything. I came to call the sick, those that know they need some help. So. We're about to jump to the last exhortation and talk about this ending. But but some want to say that it seems like he ends on failure here. He's just highlighting the failure of these women. They, did, they, they were afraid they didn't go say anything. They walk away in fear. Verse 8 says they were afraid and said nothing. We know from the rest of the story, other gospel accounts, the rest of the Bible and history, they eventually obeyed. They told and they and others kept telling. So why, at least in part, does Mark end like this on such a pessimistic note? Well, in part, because God wants us to see that the successful conclusion of the story is not ultimately dependent on human performance. God is faithful even when we are not. And God will continue to use us despite our failures. Peter failed but is restored and is used. These women failed, but eventually obeyed. The disciples were failures, but were restored and gave their lives for Christ. 
We cannot think that our failure is somehow the coffin, the nail in the coffin of God's plan. Okay, like, oh, I failed. That pastor failed. That's just, that's going to thwart God's plan. Our failure is but another opportunity for God to demonstrate his grace toward us in the accomplishment of his plans. So, if you're looking for someone who loves restoring failures, looking for someone who loves the outcast, the marginalized, the forgotten, looking for someone who redeemed even the most religiously wayward, then meet Jesus Christ. The impartial Savior of all. All right, last point, last exhortation. Uh, appreciate the reliability of the Bible. Examine the veracity of evidence. Rejoice in the restoration of grace. And finally, continue the propagation of this story. This last exhortation hopefully lands on everyone. Believer, unbeliever alike, somewhere in between, lands on everybody. You see, all of this, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the his perfect sinless life leading up to these events, up to his death and resurrection. It's all meant to call us to believe in him, okay? to trust him and to obey him, okay? to receive what he's offering, to look at these events and go, I trust him. Okay? I want to follow him. I want to obey him. That's, that's why these events are here ultimately. You, you, you heard it when David read the gospel of John. John's very explicit about it. Here's why I wrote that down. That <laughs> you may believe and have eternal life. As the larger biblical story goes, we're, we're broken people, live in a broken world. If you don't think you're broken, you don't think the world is broken, I would love to meet you. You have a great outlook on things. Okay? Even the beauty that we glimpse now, the good we get a glimpse of now, okay, is but a hint of what it was before and what it will be again one day. Okay? The biblical story says we rejected God's authority. He gave us a direction for our lives. We said no. The Bible calls that sin. As a result of us rejecting that, rejecting that authority and that direction for our lives, we are all alienated, separated from God. Not a good place to be. It's not good to be separated from God. And everything that, was, that once was and one day will only be beautiful, it was broken when we did that. And no matter how much we try, how smart we may become, how much technology we get, we, 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 we develop, or how good we think we are, we can't get ourselves out of this situation. Even our good deeds, the Bible will say, the moment that we take good deeds and we put them in the bucket of earning salvation, we say, OK, I need to fill the bucket over here of enough good deeds so that God will love me and like me and let me into heaven. The moment we take good deeds, which God loves, OK, done for his glory, and we put them in that bucket, he says, that's filthy rags. I don't want anything to do with that. OK. Can't good deed ourselves out of this. So we rebelled against God and we have no hope without God, but God being merciful. The Bible says rich in mercy. He came himself, came himself in the person of Jesus to do what we were utterly unable to do, to live perfectly. That's that's what you missed in this journey through Mark, the perfect sinless life of Christ that led up to the crucifixion. He did not deserve this. He did nothing wrong. And then he gets to the end. He took what we deserved. He died sacrificially. Our, our rebellion against God requires justice. Okay, God doesn't sweep justice under the rug. God is perfectly just. You rebel against God. Justice is coming. But God satisfied his own justice. We looked at the cross. We've already looked at that in the story. And there's so much more going on there than Roman nails. It's the absorbing of the wrath of God due sinners happening on the cross. 
And what we see before us in the resurrection is the certification that it was accepted. The resurrection is the receipt. So, so our, our burden of sin that we have is a debt. You can look at it as a debt. Jesus paid that debt on the cross and the resurrection is the receipt. Anyone ever paid off a large debt? Okay. Student loans, car, house, maybe. Okay. What do they often send you? What is whoever had that loan? What does they send you? Send you a letter. A lot of times it starts with congratulations. Okay. You are now debt free. If it's a car, you now own the car. If it's a house, you now own the car. It's a great feeling, isn't it? And, and in so many ways, it's freeing. It's liberating. Like I am no longer under the burden of this debt. The resurrection is that letter saying, congratulations. You don't owe anything. He paid it for you. Your debt's been settled. Here's the gift of eternal life. Enjoy. These events are calling you to respond. To respond to this. And then to act once you do respond to it. Let me, let me show you this, okay? This is how we'll close. Let me show you this. I'm, I've mentioned this if you've been through this journey with Mark. Mark, li- Mark likes sandwiches, okay? And not peanut butter and jelly type. Theological sandwiches. He, he likes to make a point through going A, B, A. Okay, you got, you got the B point, theological point in the middle. That's the meat. You got sandwiches and it's kind of a contrast on each side. Got another one here. In this section, the story of Joseph and his act of courage or of faith is the meat of the sandwich. The bread on each side is, is what we have told to us about the women originally keeping their distance and then kind of going away in fear and disobedience in the end. And again, Mark's point is not to drag down the women. Again, the men are not here. Okay, hopefully we've seen there to be commended. But Mark's point, he wants to contrast faith and fearfulness, Okay, courage and faithlessness as they run away. If we can see this, then we can understand why Mark ends in the way he does. So if the gospel ends in verse 8, which I tried to make a case for, then Mark just sort of drops the mic and leaves us with this picture of fear and disobedience. But Mark's point is not to highlight fear and disobedience. His aim is to invoke a response from us. He's ending with the sandwich that shows us faith or courage versus fear. He drops the mic and essentially says, what are you going to choose? You're going to choose courage or you're going to choose fear. Okay. It's like he leaves the mic in front of you or maybe a baton in front of you. He says, you're going to pick it up. Okay. You're going to run with it. You're going to, you're going to tell the story. Are you going to take courage or are you going to run away? As one writer said, the resurrection sets in motion a new story that is not yet finished. What happens next then, Mark is leaving up to us. He goes on to say the gospel of Mark leaves us with unfinished business, the unfinished business to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. This non ending becomes a never ending story as the baton passes on to us to join in the race and spread the news. Mark's stunning end raises the question, who will go and who will tell? So I'm going to take my cue from Mark. I'm going to crash the plane because he obviously it's, it can be done. You can crash the plane and it'll be done really well. Okay. Mine's not inspired. His is. Okay. Here's what Mark is saying. Okay. Listen, if you didn't get anything else, here's what Mark is saying. You've heard the story. Particularly those that have walked through the entire gospel. You've heard the story. You heard about the miracles. 
you've heard his teaching. You saw how he got to go behind the scenes with the disciples and unpack that teaching in those parables. You read about his life. Now you've read about his death and you know why he died. You know how he died and you know he's not dead. Okay, you know all of that. I've laid it out for you. That's what Mark is saying. Now what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? You know, the opening line and seeming the title of the gospel of Mark is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And the end fits the the beginning. The burial of Jesus and the news of his resurrection brings the narrative to a close. But what we see is the end of the story is no end at all. Okay, it's just the beginning. In fact, what we learn is this is just the beginning of the story. The gospel of Mark may end on Easter, but Easter is no End. Easter is more of an inauguration. So we'll just leave each other with this. You've heard the story. You've heard about the witnesses. You've been a witness to the story through the witnesses. And you've received the call. The mic is sitting in front of you. What are you going to do with it? Will you continue the propagation of this Story, Or is it just going to remain sitting there? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your inspired text that teaches us. It's been passed down to us so that we might know the perfect life, sacrificial death, and glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, your Son, given in our place, that we might be reconciled to you. Father, thank you for the ability to walk a journey through your word. Thank you for just this morning and the opportunity to open this text. And to just take a peek, just a glimpse into the tomb and see that Jesus isn't there. So we know walking away from this, the tomb is empty, but the throne is occupied. Father, help us to see the. The mic laying before us and Mark's and to hear Mark's call to pick it up and spread the story. May we be found faithful. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.